You're listening to Comedy Central. February 13, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. tonight is an amazing filmmaker whose documentary about being young and black in Alabama was just nominated for an Oscar. Ramel Ross is joining us, everybody. <laughs> a really brilliant man. Gonna enjoy chatting to him. Also on the show, Fox News loves cow farts. Americans say, don't mess with taxes, and we sent a border wall to Trump's rally. <laughs> but first, let's catch up on today's headlines. <laughs> the Oscars. It's the night when the world comes together to celebrate filmmakers. And now there's a plan to make the show more exciting by leaving the filmmakers out of it. Now to new drama surrounding the Oscars. There's some backlash this morning after the Academy announced four awards will be given out during commercial breaks. Several categories, including cinematography, won't be aired live. You won't see film editing live either. The Academy has announced those categories, in addition to best live action short and makeup hairstyling, will all be awarded during commercial breaks. During commercial breaks? Okay, that's just humiliating. <laughs> they have to get their awards during commercials? Like, what the Oscars should just do is combine the two. You know, have the winners do a commercial during their speech. <laughs> yeah. Just be like, wow, wow, I, I'd like to thank my agent. At GEICO, he saved me 15% on car insurance. Thank you so much, Jim. You know, at this point, it's starting to feel like the Academy's just trying to piss people off. There's no host. They're cutting major awards. We're like a week away from them being like, just to speed things up, the In Memoriam will also be actors who we wish were dead, okay? (laughs) You know who you are. And speaking of things that make people angry, taxes. A lot of people celebrated last year when President Trump told them he was cutting their taxes. But now they're learning about a side effect that they weren't prepared for. It is tax season, and we are getting some new information on the effects of the 2017 tax overhaul. The IRS says the average refund is down almost 8.5% so far this year. Two-thirds of households are paying less in taxes, but you already received the cuts because less money was withheld from your paycheck. That means you got a small boost on every paycheck without realizing it. I was planning on taking a vacation that I'm now going to have to postpone. <laughs> this is such an American problem. You see, as an African, I don't have to pay taxes to the IRS. Oh, that's what I thought. Long story short, I'm going to prison and I will miss you guys. (laughs) But if people are paying less taxes overall, I don't understand why they're upset if the refund check is smaller, right? You realize it's not a gift. I've seen Americans get so happy, like, oh, my refund just came in. My refund, it's your own money (laughs) that the government was holding on to. It's like a coat check. When you get your jacket back, it would be with me like, yes, I got a jacket. (laughs) Guess I can take that vacation after all. (laughs) I will say though, this is a convenient story to break the day before Valentine's Day, right? Now every cheap ass dude can be like, oh baby, I would love to take you out to dinner, but damn Trump, man. (laughs) Anyway, here's a pack of juicy fruit and some Pringles. I love you. (laughs) 
That's how that white guy talks. He reads too much like hip hop like stories and shit. He's just, he loves hip hop. <laughs> Moving on, Howard Schultz is the Starbucks billionaire who has been cosplaying as a serious presidential candidate. <laughs> and last night, he did a CNN town hall where he was asked how he would address racism in America. Because people want to know, can a wealthy white man govern a country that is substantially non-white? And his answer was, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> as somebody who grew up in a very diverse background as a young boy in the projects, I didn't see color as a young boy. And I honestly don't see color now. Oh, this works out great because I don't hear bullshit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Get the f out of here, man. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sorry, but you have to see color. There's nothing wrong with seeing color. You just shouldn't treat people differently because of their color, but you have to see it, especially if you want to be president. It would be like, okay, how are you gonna solve black unemployment? And this guy would be like, what's black unemployment? <laughs> All I see is staggering unemployment among people named Jamal. <laughs> anyway, it's February, so happy history month. <laughs> you know what's interesting? You know what's interesting to me is that it's always white people who say they don't see color. I've never heard a black person like, hey, yo, did y'all know Ed Sheeran is white? <laughs> I had no clue, B. Yo, that's probably why I look so uncomfortable when I yell the N-word at him, damn! <laughs> All right, let's move on to today's top story. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. By now, you probably know her as Congress's superstar freshman Democrat. Or if you watch Fox News, what would happen if Stalin was good at Instagram? <laughs> Either way, you cannot deny she's making waves because she's only been in office for six weeks. But already, she's put forward a blueprint to combat climate change, which is one of the more ambitious policy proposals Washington has seen in a very long time, and it's called the Green New Deal. We are going to transition this country into the future. The Green New Deal calls for a 10-year national mobilization. The goal in one short decade to bring greenhouse gas emissions to zero, meet 100% of energy needs by renewable sources, overhaul transportation systems. Expanding a high-speed rail to, quote, a scale where air travel stops becoming necessary. It would modernize U.S. infrastructure upgrade or replace every building for energy efficiency, create millions of high-paying jobs, bring equality and equal justice for underserved, minority, and impoverished communities. The plan calls for government-guaranteed jobs, government-provided health care, free education for life, and safe, affordable housing for everyone. Wow. That's a lot of major issues for a climate change plan to solve. I mean... <laughs> No, I expected the Green New Deal to tackle greenhouse gases, gases and fossil fuels, but apparently it's also gonna give everyone a job and healthcare and free education and provide affordable housing and get your parents back together. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, these are admirable aspirations, but I'm always skeptical whenever someone proposes a cure-all, you know? It's like one of those old-timey health products that traveling salesmen used to sell. They'd be like, just one bottle will cure insomnia, headaches, seasickness, mustache, weakness, and even a total eclipse of the heart. <laughs> But I will say this, the main part of the bill is about climate change. And Ocasio-Cortez is right that the U.S. needs to take drastic measures to prevent climate change's worst effects. Of course, over at Fox News, as soon as they heard Cortez and climate change, sirens started going off 
like Bin Laden just emerged from the ocean holding Aquaman's trident. <laughs> they were like, this is not a drill, we have a code AOC! Man your battle stations! What is this Green New Deal? Answer, radical environmental socialism. One of the most dangerous, impractical, misguided, economically guaranteed to be devastating plans ever. It sounds more like of a, a green nightmare to me when none of us are able to turn on the heat or turn on the air conditioning. When we outlaw plane travel, we outlaw gasoline, we outlaw cars, I think actually probably the entire U.S. military because of the Green New Deal. There's another victim of the Green New Deal, it's ice cream. Livestock will be banned. The Green New Deal wants to go after flatulent cows. So what are they saying? We're going to ban hamburgers and Americans are never going to have a barbecue and flip a hamburger you, again? No more steak. I guess government forced veganism is in order. Yeah, they'll force feed us broccoli while giving us a tofu enema. Yeah. <laughs> We're all going to be gang banged by vegetables. Yeah. Yeah, that eggplant emoji, not funny anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know you know what I love about American politics? Is that whenever someone in the opposing party says something, there's this weird thing where you immediately have to take the exact opposite position. Ocasio-Cortez says that cow farting contributes to climate change, which is true, by the way, it's true. And all of a sudden, Fox News is like, cow farts are the smell of freedom, okay? <laughs> Every time a cow farts, George Washington gives me a thumbs up from the grave. <laughs> And look, there are legitimate concerns about the Green New Deal. You can ask questions like, how are you gonna pay for it? Can it actually get done that quickly? Can we really replace coal with the electricity between Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga? <laughs> Is it feasible? <laughs> there are enough real questions about the Green New Deal for conservatives to take issue with, but I guess it's more fun to just scare America into thinking it's about to become a vegan North Korea, yeah! <laughs> because obviously, the Green New Deal doesn't ban meats or dairy, or air travel, or cars, right? You'd still be free to eat your steak-flavored ice cream on your private jet. <laughs> what Ocasio-Cortez wants to do is invest in alternatives that are better for the Earth. Like, wherever it makes sense to replace air travel with high-speed rail, we should do that. And honestly, why would you be against that? Who's that one guy who'd be like, but if we don't use planes, how will I take a shit in a bathroom that's only two inches larger than my body, huh? <laughs> this is an outrage! But look, it's no surprise that Fox News would oppose a plan that a Democrat came up with. What is surprising is that the country's most powerful Democrat would also be dissing the Green New Deal. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is throwing some shade at it, telling Politico, quote, it will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive. The Green Dream, or whatever they call it, nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? Ooh! <laughs> the Green Dream, or whatever they call it? That's so cold. She dismissed the Green New Deal like it was, like that weird kind of YouTube challenge, you know? It was, it was like, all the kids these days are trying to snort cinnamon up their butts or <laughs> save the planet for the human race or something like that. But look, not everyone is so lukewarm on the Green New Deal. In fact, polls show young people are extremely supportive of strong action against climate change, which is probably why many of the Democrats running for president have also said that they support it. Because if you want to connect with the youth and the energy of the Democratic Party, right now, you want to be on board with Ocasio-Cortez. She's basically the Cardi B of politics. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter what she's rapping, you want to feature on her tracks. Yeah, OOC's basically like, I like high-speed trains, carbon tax, and no planes. That's what I'm doing now. And the people gather round. That's her thing. So, 
Old people not big fans, young people love it. There's clearly a generational divide on this deal. So for more on this, we're joined by our senior youth correspondent, Jabuki Young-White, everybody. <laughs> Jabuki. How can young people convince the rest of the country to get serious on climate change? Trevor, why do young people have to fix everything, you know? I've got enough problems. I've got student loans. I'm trying to break up with my therapist. <laughs> and I need to get unverified on Twitter. If Wolf Blitzer's got a blue check, that's just not cool anymore. <laughs> Plus, like, why do we have to fix climate change if we didn't create it? Old people got us into this mess. They should be able to get us out of it. You know, I, I understand where you're coming from, but it may be too late for only old people to solve climate change by themselves. Okay, well, then the least they can do is pay us. You know, young people deserve compensation for the wrongs that the previous generation has inflicted on us. You mean, like, reparations? No, reparations are for things that happened in the past. Y'all are f***ing us over in the future. <laughs> so, like, technically, this is, like, pre-reparations, you know? Like, preparation. <laughs> wow, I just made up a word. <laughs> Pre preparations is a word. Yeah, because I just made it up. <laughs> Here, here's how it will work, you know? You pay young people in proportion to how much you contributed to climate change. If you drove a Hummer, you owe like a thousand bucks. But if you ran a coal mine, that's 10 million. <laughs> and if you drove a Hummer to the coal mine you owned, give us all your passwords, we're taking all your shit. <laughs> okay, everything. okay, so the old people pay you, but then what do the young people use the money for? Well, we do all the things that we won't be able to do once climate change ruins everything, you know? Like visit a glacier or pet an elephant or like, Buy Beyonce tickets. Well, I feel like now you're just using climate change to scam Beyonce tickets. No, everything is gonna be underwater, Trevor. That includes Beyonce. Okay, oh, right, you know what? Grifting aside, the idea of pre-reparations makes sense. I actually think I can get behind this. For real? <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> I didn't think that old people would get on board so quick. But... Dude, I, I, like, I've, I've talked to you about this. Stop calling, I'm not old. You don't call me old on the show. Did, didn't you get my voicemail about this? I don't know, what's, what's a voicemail? No, it's, it's, it's a recording of my voice that I sent to your phone and then you listen to it. Oh, so it's like a mini podcast for one. That's so cute. God damn it, Jabuki Young White, everyone. We'll be right back. My guest tonight is a professor at Brown University, a photographer and a filmmaker whose critically acclaimed documentary, Hale County This Morning, This Evening, is nominated for an Academy Award. Please welcome Ramel Ross. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Trevor. And I mean, first things first, congratulations on your Oscar nomination. Thank you. Thank you. 
your your first documentary gets yeah. an Oscar nomination. That's that's a that's a pretty high bar for you right now. It's pretty just, wild. I'm done. I'm done, finished yeah? after this. You should no put, put while you're ahead and just be done. Yeah. Um, you'll be one for one and two for zero. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the um, the film is truly beautiful, and it's it's difficult to capture in that clip. I mean, if someone's watching that right now, they'll be like, "Do I need to be high?" But <laughs> but 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 the film is a story that you have put together. It took five years yeah. to film this documentary. And it was a story that really is just about being black mm-hmm. in the South. Mm-hmm. How do you even begin to just make a documentary about life? Yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge. I think I realized that you just display it. You don't sensationalize it. You don't dramatize it. You you know, use the documentary genre because it's a space where, you know, people are sort of predisposed to truth, right. which is a great, great entryway into an idea. And so you film black folks, you use the black banal, you use the quotidian, and you, um, yeah, and, you know, you look to, I think, the logic of music, which is kind of counterintuitive and, and is repetitious and has contradictions in it to provide, like, a space of experience so someone can actually experience what it's like to see and be there, perhaps. Right, because a, a lot of the time when somebody says, oh, this is gonna be a documentary about black people living in the South, you immediately expect conflict. You expect it's gonna be tension, there's gonna be racism on the surface, it's just gonna be like this violent portrayal of black life. But this is truly a story that takes place and it takes you through an undulating journey. It's calm, it's happy, it's sad. There, There are just moments of nothing in the film. Was that important to you to capture black life in the South in its entirety? It was. It was important to, to centralize the black experience and to centralize the black gaze. It's something that Toni Morrison talks a lot about um, with her novels. There's a, a fundamental, you know, use of the camera and black folks where you're sort of pointing to black people as the other. Right. But what happens when you reorient the camera and you centralize our view and you're the other and you show blackness as a default, not something to be a spectacle or something to be, wow. um, you know tied into a narrative that is important and expresses struggle, but simultaneously sort of forecloses a greater understanding of what it is to be a human being and to be a person of color. When, when you made this film, what, what makes it really interesting is that you moved to Hale County, right? And so you were there and you, you, you lived there for a number of years before you decided to make this documentary. Normally documentaries are made by people who go to a place to cover a story. Yeah. In many ways, you were telling the story of your adopted community. Yeah. Did that change how you made the film? No, I think it just improved the ability for the film to be an authentic display or rendition of my experience, but then simultaneously the community's experience and the negotiation between that and not some sort of feigned objectivity um, or some feigned, um, you know, exploration into ideas that are fundamentally a sort of fantasy... relate. You have, like, a fantasy relationship to. Right. And... Yeah, I think, I think that's the most beautiful part is that it was my life with their life that allows you to participate in both of those. And so there's this genuine sort of collectivity in the, in the piece. You, you, you followed two subjects um, whom I believe you met at a basketball camp, right? And uh, kind of. Kind of, kind of in that, in that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, um, you, you know... What's interesting is it, because it's a journey that takes place over five years. This is the way I felt about it when I was when I was watching the film. It feels like a photo album that mm-hmm. has come to life. You know when you flip through someone's photo album and you you see oh this is when you were a baby and this is when this happened. This, that's that's really what the film feels like. It doesn't feel like a linear storytelling. We're jumping through time and space. The pictures are moving. 
it's, it's really a photographer's portrayal of a film, in my opinion. Yeah. But what's interesting is there are moments in the film where you are, you are in the grittiest piece of a person's life. I mean, mm. there's one point where you are at the funeral of a toddler. Mm-hmm. How do you capture those moments without feeling like you're overstepping boundaries? Well, you know, the moments of the funeral and, and you know, how they're displayed in the films are the only footage I have of it because I wasn't interested in filming the footage. Right. You know, I, I was there as a support, um, you know, person for this really tragic thing that happened. And so, you know, the shots are really distant and, you know, it happens in the film and then you sort of move on because the film isn't about the struggle. It's not about the trauma of the situation. It's something that happened, but it's not something that the film is necessarily about. Right. And I think, you know, in terms of the photographic approach, you know, the South is kind of the, the conceptual home for the black image and for black men and for black women and for black people. And so taking a photographic approach allows you to participate in, you know, the, the documentary genre with a sort of enhanced complexity of the moment. Right. You know, normally films are sort of building off moments and scenes in order to prove some thesis or prove some narrative. But what happens when you make every frame and every moment the most important moment that's packed with ideas and packed with the ambiguity necessary to really deal with the contradiction of being blackness? Um, Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to just compound meaning as much as possible and sort of see what kind of experience um, emerges. When people watch this film, they're gonna have many different takeaways. Some people will say it's beautiful. Some people will say it's, it's enlightening, it's calming. It's, it's, a, it's a different experience. As the filmmaker, what do you hope they would take away that maybe you haven't seen people taking away? You know, I genuinely hope that people have an actual experience. I think, well, I mean, I believe that experience is before words. It's like before knowledge. You sort of apply the narrative after, you apply meaning after. And so, you know, the film is rigorously made And with that in mind, if someone can make it through the film, have an experience of what it's like to look through my eyes through their lives, then they'll have an experience of the centrality of our gaze. And hopefully um, that provides some new input or some new understanding of of me and them and the world. Thank you so much for being on the show. Truly, truly amazing film. Hale County this morning, this evening. It's currently in select theaters. You can also stream the film on PBS.com or buy it on iTunes. Ramel Ross, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.